David, can we have lights back there, please? I'd like to at least see you people back here. There we go. Awesome. Um, I asked David if, if it's okay if I just use the handheld. Um, I've been battling a, a cough this week, and I'm told I have this obnoxiously loud cough, so I'll spare you of that as much as I can. Um, but that last song was perfect. I love the the first line, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, because that's, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, um, and it's what Advent is all about. All right, perfect. Thanks for getting that picture up here, David. Um, I'm curious uh, this morning, how many of you celebrate Advent in your homes or have in the past? Kind of? little Brent and Dawn? We've talked about it a little bit here and there. We've done a little bit, bits and pieces of it, but I began doing some research um, on what Advent is, and I realized I don't know a whole lot about Advent. Um, So I'm going to maybe bore you to tears with it, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of Advent. And then you see um, the candles up here. I think um, by next Sunday we'll have the candles actually here and we'll light them as we go through, because each of the candles has significance, and, and we'll talk about that here. But uh, the word Advent, simply, it's a Latin word, and it means coming. So that's, that's what the word means. But the history of Advent, I hadn't realized this, but the history dates all the way back to as early as 400 to 500 years after Christ. So the early church actually participated or celebrated Advent. So it's a rich, really rich tradition, um, but it's filled with lots of meaningful symbolism, which that's what tradition is, isn't it? So traditions are, we give traditions a bad rap sometimes, I do. Um, some, sometimes traditions seem really pointless, um, and if, if they remain just a tradition because it points to something else, they serve their purpose, but if they become more than that, then we are missing it, I think. Um, but Advent is simply a tradition. That's what it is. Uh, it's, it's a way to remember and to reflect on, on the coming of Christ. So the Advent season focuses on remembering that first Christmas. It was all the talking about pointing forward to the coming Christ. But it's also a time of anticipating and looking forward in expectation to the coming of Christ the second time which I think we can kind of get lost in that a little bit sometimes. But Advent, how it has been celebrated, has really changed, just like any tradition, it's changed down through the years. Um, Typically, the way it's celebrated now is the last four Sundays. So this is the first Sunday. There's today and then three more Sundays leading up to Christmas. So the the last four Sundays leading up to Christmas is when Advent starts and when Advent is celebrated. And here's the part about Advent that I really like, uh, probably because it's what I need. Um, But it is an invitation to slow down. It's an invitation to slow down and reflect so that we don't get lost in the rush of the season. Um, And so there's where some of the different ways that that Advent is celebrated. Sometimes you can do it in your homes where where you have a candle that you light every day. And it simply, it, it gets us to slow down. Because sometimes, I don't have to tell you guys this, you know it. We get so busy this time of year. There's so much going on. 
But I think it's so important that we take the time to reflect. So, uh, you see the four candles. <coughs> Three purple candles, one pink candle, and one white candle. Five candles at all. Um, so, what is the purpose of those candles? And this stri- strictly comes through uh, liturgical calendars, liturgical meanings that are behind these colors. Um, and you can dig into and discover what all the colors symbolize. But the first candle and the one that we're going to be focusing on this morning is called the prophet's candle. And it's one of the purple candles that's up here. And that candle symbolizes hope. And it's a hope, um, well we'll talk about it, um, that is an expectant hope. The second candle next Sunday is also a purple candle that's called, called the Bethlehem candle. And that one symbolizes faith. The third candle is the pink candle, and it's often called the shepherd's candle, and it symbolizes joy. The fourth candle is, again, a purple candle, the angel's candle, and it symbolizes peace. And so there you have the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas. And then the white candle, as you can imagine, is called Christ's candle, and that one's often lit on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day. So today, in your mind, at least light that first candle. The first candle, the prophet's candle, hope. It symbolizes hope. So what is hope? How do you define hope? Hope is something that we use um, in so many different ways. Sometimes it's a word we just kind of throw out there, and we use it just kind of flippantly. Um, How many of you children... Hope that you get some certain gift this Christmas. Oh, I see hands up everywhere. There's something that you're really wanting. That's what you're hoping to get, right? I hope you get it too, by the way. That'd be really cool. Um, but for you as adults, what, what are you hoping for? Are you hoping for a raise? Uh, this is just a weird thing, but one of the things I, I thought about for, for us is I hope our old Chrysler van makes it to 200,000 miles. I'm, I'm ready to have my hope stashed, but I'm hoping for that. Um, me and that van have a history, by the way, so that's why I don't like it. Um, sometimes our hopes are dashed. That's just a reality of life sometimes. Sometimes you'll lose your job, your health, your car. And maybe instead of getting that really, that really cool gift that you're hoping for, maybe you'll get colored pencils and you're going to be going kind of bummed. Some of you might think that's cool. Um, But I just want you to think about the different ways that we use hope, the different ways that we talk about hope, and how our hopes are dashed. And I couldn't help but think, when we talk about hopes being dashed, how familiar are Cleveland Browns fans with that idea? (laughs) I see a hand right there. (laughs) Uh, You had these high hopes going into this season especially, and man, they just... Burst your bubble right off the bat. Anyway, some of you still have hope that they'll pull something off and make it to the playoffs, but I don't know, your hopes might be dashed there as well. Um, Anyway, so we use it in so many different ways, but I want you to think this morning about hope as not just this flippant or whimsical thing, that fantasy that you want, something you want. Um, and, And that's part of it, but there's much more to hope than that. It's an expressed feeling of something that you desire. 
But it also carries with it the expectation that that desire is going to be fulfilled. <coughs> so as you think about hope, um, the one question that I kept coming back to or kept coming to my mind was, can you survive without hope? Can you make it in life without hope? When everything is stripped away and all hope is taken away from you, what do you have left? You're left with nothing. It sucks the life right out of you. So hope is such an important part of our lives. Um, And this morning as we look at, we'll turn to Isaiah here in a little bit. I was given Isaiah 40 for the text here. Um, But there's three different aspects or ways I want us to look at hope. And the first one is this expectation of hope. Because hope is more than just that, that wanting or that longing for something. It's an expectation. And we can be sure and confident in that expectation when our source of hope is in the right place. And then we have the outcome or the result of how hope affects our lives. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 40. Um, This is a long, very long chapter, and I'm going to read bits and pieces of it um, as we go through, because it's such a rich, such a really rich passage. Um, But I think it's worth noting that when you read Isaiah, it's a long book, 66 chapters, but right here in chapter 40, there's this sudden total shift. He makes a sharp right turn in his writing. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, if you read those, there is lots of judgment. It's dark. It's, it's really heavy. He's talking about the people being punished for all their sin. And he's even talking about how they're going to be going into exile, the Babylonian exile, when they were exiled for 70 years, um, completely wiped out and, and taken from their homes And then he comes to chapter 40, and he writes chapters 40 to 66. They take a completely different tone almost. It's this comfort. It's this longing for God to, for his, God wants his people to know that he's not forgotten them, that he's with them, that they have hope. Um, And so it's this really beautiful picture of God being with his people But it's much more than even being with his people in their present circumstance. He's pointing them forward to something that much better that's coming. That's the coming Messiah. And Isaiah is so full of that expectation, that looking forward to the coming Messiah. Um, Isaiah 53, probably the most well-known one, how he talks about Jesus on the cross there in Isaiah 53. It shows up several times here in uh, Isaiah chapter 40. As I, as I read through chapter 40 here numerous times, I realized there's a lot of songs that are taken out of this chapter. I thought of, there's at least two that I know of, and I'm sure there's more. Part of Handel's Messiah is taken um, from Isaiah 40. So there's this really strong theme in chapter 40 and all through Isaiah that points us forward to something better. It's much more than what we're experiencing right now. So if you're in, in, um, in Isaiah chapter 40, I'm going to read the first five verses, and then we'll have a couple comments, and then we'll keep going, um, and I'll read, read some more of it then. But Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5, 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When do you need hope in your life? When do you need it the most? Do you need, how much do you need hope when it's, everything is really going well? Things are running smoothly in your life. feels like everything's falling into place. Do you need hope then? You do. You do. You still need hope. We always need hope. But maybe we're just not as aware of it. But when life starts coming apart at its seams, you realize how desperately you need something to hold on to, and that is hope. So think about who Isaiah is writing to here. So this is written, actually, the exile has not yet happened, but he's writing to the people as if they are in exile. So you can kind of, that, that's why he's writing. He's realizing that they're going to need something to hold on to, something to give them hope. So think about it. He begins with comfort. The people are in exile, they're needing hope, their lives have been completely uprooted, everything they had known is lost, families are separated, they have no jobs. I had to think of the refugee camps. That's kind of what the children of Israel were feeling as they read this while they were in exile. And I can't, it's hard for me to even wrap my mind around what it must feel like for a refugee. Think of... We often think of them as just poor people, but you're talking doctors, nurses, people had jobs and businesses and were productive in society. And all of a sudden, all of that is stripped away. And so comfort is so incredibly important in that time. But he also reminds them that what is right now, what you're experiencing right now, will not always be. Something better is coming And so that comfort comes in the midst of our circumstances, but it also points us forward to something better that is coming. So hope itself is not dependent on our circumstances. Our circumstances will dictate what we feel and how we uh, maybe interact with hope, but our circumstances do not dictate whether we have hope or not. Hope needs to be present in the midst of our circumstances. It's something that is much deeper than the desire that we have for our situation to improve. So it's much more than just what you're in right now, wanting that to improve. Hope is more than a state of mind. Hope is a person. I want you to latch on to that. Hope is a person, and that's Jesus Christ. There's only one thing, one sure hope that you and I can have in our lives, and that is Jesus Christ, who becomes our source of hope. And that's why I think it's so important that we, we place our hope in so many different things in life. We're, we're all probably good enough Christians where we think we don't, 
But how often do we place hope in the things around us, maybe even in the people around us, um, or we place hope in our circumstances, our jobs, whatever. We, we do that so quickly and so easily, and we're going to be let down every single time because there's nothing sure in that. But when our hope is in the right source, we find surety, we find confidence in hope. The middle section of, of chapter 40 here, I'm actually going to read it, read it to you in, in the message version. Um, because he, he just says it so well. And sometimes, Scripture just says things a whole lot better than I can, so I'm going to let Scripture speak for itself. But as I read, I'm going to read verses 9 all the way down to 28 um, from the Message Version. And as I read this, I want you to be thinking about where you place your hope and what happens when you place your hope in the God that he's talking about. Because he talks about God as this big, majestic, powerful, incredible being, and yet there's this aspect that comes in that is so incredibly intimate with every little thing that you and I are feeling and how intimate he longs to be with us as his people. So just listen as I read um, from the message, and like I said, I'm going to read from verse 9 down to 28. Climb a high mountain, Zion. You're the preacher of good news. Raise your voice. Make it good and loud. You're the preacher of good news. Speak loud and clear. Don't be timid. Tell the cities of Judah, look, you're God. Look at him. God, the master, comes in power, ready to go into action. He is going to pay back his enemies and reward those who have loved him. Listen to this. This is probably one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Like a shepherd... He will care for his flock, gathering the lambs in his arms, hugging them as he carries them, leading the nursing ewes to good pasture. Who has scooped up the ocean in his two hands or measured the sky between his thumbs and little finger? Who has put all the earth's dirt in one of his baskets, weighed each mountain and hill? Who could ever have told God what to do or taught him his business? What expert would have gone to... Would he have gone to for advice? What school would he attend to learn justice? What God do you suppose might have taught him what he knows? Show him how things work. Why, the nations are but a drop, a bucket, a mere smudge on a window. Watch him sweep up the islands like so much dust off the floor. There aren't enough trees in Lebanon nor enough animals in the vast forest to furnish the adequate fuel and offerings for his worship. All the nations add up to nothing before him. Less than nothing is more like it, a minus. So who even comes close to being like God? To whom or what can you compare him? Some no-God idol? Ridiculous. It's made in a work- workshop, cast in bronze, given a thin veneer of gold, and draped with a silver fi- filigree. Or perhaps someone will select a fine wood, olive wood, say, that won't rot, They hire a woodcarver to make it a no-god, giving special care to its base so it won't tip over. Have you not been paying attention? Have you not been listening? Haven't you heard these stories all your life? Don't you understand the foundation of all things? God sits high above the round balls of ball of earth. The people look like mere ants. He stretches out the skies like a canvas. 
yes, like a tent canvas to live under. He ignores what all the princes say and do. The rulers of the earth count for nothing. Princes and rulers don't amount to much. Like seeds barely rooted, just sprouted, they shrivel when God blows on them. Like flecks of chaff, they are gone with the wind. So, who is like me? Who holds a candle to me, says the holy? Look at the night skies. Who do you think made all of this? Who marches his army of stars out each night, counts them off and calls them each by name? So magnificent, so powerful, and never overlooks a single one. Why would you complain, O Jacob, or whine Israel, saying, God has lost track of me. He doesn't care what happens to me. Don't you know anything? Haven't you been listening? God doesn't come and go. God lasts. He's he's creator of all you see or imagine. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't pause to catch his breath. And he knows everything inside and out. When your source of hope is settled in that, you can be sure. There's nothing that will ever waver that. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. And when our hope is firmly settled in him, we will not be failed. It's not going to let us down. And if you jump forward or to the end of the chapter, these incredibly familiar verses, um, verses 29 to 31. I'm just going to read him real quick. He gives power to the faint, and to him has no might. He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So God comforts his people. Then he goes through that long ordeal and he confirms his strength and his might. When our source of hope is the majestic, incomparable, incomparable, all-powerful, and intimate God, we can rest in knowing that his limitless source of strength is much greater than anything we could experience. So he spent all that time talking about how great and powerful and majestic he is, And then he comes to verse 30, even youth who feel undestructible at times, they're going to get tired, they're going to get weary. Young men are going to be weary. And all the way back in verses 6 to 7, he also talks about the brevity or the frailty of man. So he draws this, I think he's drawing this big contrast so that we recognize that we cannot hope in ourselves. We've got nothing in ourselves to rely on. Our strength is limited. His is unlimited. And so we rest in that promise in verse 29 that he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. And we love that promise. But then you jump down to 31. It seems like there's a condition There's a condition, there's this little four-letter word that we don't like very much. How many of you like to wait? Who likes waiting? I don't, but maybe you do. But I realized that hope and waiting go hand in hand. You can't separate the two, actually. 
Because if you are hoping for something, um, take... We were even talking at home. So when we get to heaven, are we going to need hope? Are we going to be hoping for something? We won't need to hope anymore, will we? But until we get to heaven... We have to wait till Jesus comes back, but we hope with confident expectation that he's coming. And the, the two, actually, the words are almost the exact same. They almost mean the exact same thing. So what you hope for, what you're confidently expecting, actually requires waiting. And waiting is not sitting around doing nothing, okay? We often think about waiting that way. But it's a walking forward with confident expectation that God will supply the strength needed for the journey ahead. It has the same idea as hope. <clears throat> One of the definitions for the word wait that I found and how it's used in most times in Scripture. Listen carefully. as, as I, This is um, kind of hard to understand, but, but listen to it. It's really, really good. The most important and frequent use of the word wait, however, is to define the attitude of a soul towards God. It implies the listening ear and a heart responsive to the wooing of God, a concentration of the spiritual faculties upon heavenly things, the patience of faith. It describes an eager anticipation and yearning for the revelation of truth and love as it is in the Father. One thing that I, I, I didn't mention early on, when I, when I was looking up the word hope in Scripture, it's, it's, Scripture's full of the uses of the word. Sometimes it's not translated hope. Um, I was struck with it because um, in Psalms, some of the Psalms use it differently. Psalm 40, it's the exact same word, but it uses the word trust instead of hope. Uh, Psalm 65 was another one. It uses the word confidence. So there's where you get that idea that hope is not just this whimsical feeling that's flittering away and at any given moment. It's a confidence because of who it's placed in. And so that's what I want us to remember as we go through this Advent season. So just to, to, to close it, as we, do, as we do Advent, as we go through this season, please, I'm telling myself this, take time to reflect. Just slow down. Take time to reflect. Remember and celebrate the birth of Christ. The Old Testament is just chock full of this longing, this expectation of the coming Messiah. And I had to ask myself, do I have that same kind of longing for when he comes back? Or am I so wrapped up in my little world right now that I kind of forget about that? I think we need to be remembering and reflecting that first coming but also we need to be looking forward to that second coming because what we are in right now is not what is always going to be. The best is yet to come. You guys know that story, that the best is yet to come. And that's true for you and I today. Why don't you stand with me and we'll have dismissal prayer. Thanks for your attention and for bearing with me this morning. God, this morning as we as we look at, at your word, um, God, thank you so much for who you are and that we can build and rest 
and hope in you, and we can be confident because of who you are. Your character, your love, who you are will never, ever change, and we can, we can just be sure in that. We can rest in that. And as we go through this, this Advent season, God, um, and the busyness of it, God, just help us to be able to slow down. Help us to take the time to intentionally reflect and remember the, the incredible gift that you gave when you left the splendor of heaven and you came down as a baby in a manger. But also help us to look forward to anticipation when you come again in majesty and power and might and we can go and be with you forever because the best is yet to come. In your name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.